Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. All right, let's get started. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Aaron Burton, owner and consultant for unconventional oil and gas training. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I appreciate it. How's your day going? I know we're somewhat early getting started here, but so far so good. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We got this great weather going on in Houston, so no complaints. Finally. It's yes. like yesterday I got back from Denver and I came home and it was about four o'clock and my daughter came running outside and she was wearing shorts and you know, she, you could tell she was summer ready. She wanted to go to the splash pad and it was like, honey, I know it's warm out, but we got to wait to get to right. the splash pad. And so of course we hung outside and she's, uh, she's three and a half. So she was, she's got a scooter. So she was scooting up and down the driveway and it was just nice to have like some warm weather. I could wear some shorts, be outside, not pouring rain. Hopefully we've got some consistency coming up, which it looks like it does according to the weather forecast. Yeah, so absolutely. That's uh, that's part of the reason why I moved down from Canada because it's so cold up there, and it was like I I, I, I want to move closer to the equator. And when I moved down here, I actually thought it was going to be like like tropical weather, like. 365 days a year so the fact that it snowed last year blew me away i'm like do i have to go south of the you know like do i have to go on the other side of the pond or do i have to go into mexico like where at what point am i going to be satisfied with the weather but it's much better than canada i always tell people it's a lot easier to uh, shovel rain than it is snow so anyway that, that my little blurb on on the weather here but anyway thanks for coming on the show before we get started and getting into the weeds of everything, is it true that you wrote a chapter in an award-winning textbook? And if you have, if, if that's the right Aaron Burton, tell us about that. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So it is. So uh, a couple years back, uh, well, several years back now, my colleagues and I at Baker Hughes, we were on the unconventional resources team and we had, uh, it varied a little bit from time to time, but anywhere from 10 to 13 people that went through all aspects of unconventional reservoirs. So after we had done that for uh, a couple of years, uh, uh, we had our, our training that was a week long. We decided that we should write a textbook. So our uh, executive team backed us on it. We went out and got some very knowledgeable outside sources as well and teamed up and wrote a textbook all about start to finish unconventional developing and exploring unconventional resources. So my expertise, my, my purpose on the team was multi-stage completions for hydraulic fracturing. So I wrote chapter, I believe it was 16 on that multi-stage completion. So then all of a sudden, probably six months, eight months after it was released, we were notified that pros had uh, nominated it for or, or had awarded it textbook of the year for, for technology and engineering, some, something along those lines. No kidding. So is that how long ago was that? Let's see. It would have been two years ago that we were awarded. So it was, it was somewhere around three years ago, I believe, that the, the textbook was published. And okay. obviously it takes a year or so to write the textbook. So do you so. do book signings or things like that? Like, that's pretty no. legit, man. I don't. <laughs> it is actually, so one of the editors and I, so the two editors are Nathan Meehan and Usman Ahmed. So their, their names are on the cover of the book. And it was funny because I was working with one of them teaching a class recently and they did get asked for an autograph on the book. So that is so cool, man. Is your name in the book? It has to be. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. For, for the chapter. But I, nobody's asked me for my autograph yet, but okay. it's pretty worthless anyway. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's understandable. Hey, you've helped revolutionize the industry, man. That's so cool. What, I mean, did you have any experience writing books before? Or was this just like off the cusp? You're like, you know what, we're going to write a textbook. So indirectly, so I'd written some SPE papers. It, it's kind of interesting over the years. I've, I've really kind of understood that some of my technical strengths are, are are that you know I can take 
highly technical things and make them into layman's terms uh, relatively easy. So grammar is sometimes an issue for me, but at least the feedback I've gotten from editors is, you know, the flow is a little bit better. The ability to make complex things simple can be, is a strong suit of mine. It is. And and oftentimes we have two sort of two types of people in the oil field. You have your super technical people who can solve all the world's problems and, you know, who, who can, you know, get through any types of challenges and then you have, you know, the salesmen who kind of understand the technical part, but have a lot of times a hard time bridging the gap. So people like yourselves are extremely valuable. And it's it's oftentimes, even for myself, I work in the drilling fluids world. And sometimes when, you know, we try to relay a message to our lab, what the customer wants, they do it. And then when they explain it, I tell them, like, I can't relay what you just said to to my customer. They're going to be completely confused. And so can you help simplify it? And, and a lot of times they have a hard time doing that. So if you have that skill... I think that just helps advance our industry, you know, even better and just more efficiently. So uh, that's really neat. Is your textbook in any sort of university courses or anything? I mean, that's pretty, pretty big time, I think. You know, I'm not for certain that it's in university courses, but CRC is the publisher. So it is a large publisher. So it is definitely out there in the public. I, I couldn't, I couldn't say for sure if it's being used in curriculum anywhere. Either way, if anyone wants to get it where do they get it amazon or is where do you- uh yeah i believe it is on amazon now you can order it directly through crc's website if you want i can send you a link yeah to put send it in the me podcast. a link yeah. i'm gonna put it in the show notes and that was i was getting at if anyone's interested is it for is it for your your seasoned vets or is it for anyone out there to sort of get a better understanding on unconventional completions so it's a little bit of both. Uh, typically speaking, you know, everybody has their own expertise. So even if they are, you know, an expert on the reservoir side, but not familiar with the the completions, the fracturing in, a lot of times that'll be beneficial there because it kind of does cover the entire array, you know, and it, like I said, there were, I, I can't even remember how many authors total because since we teamed up outside, but I would venture to say 30 different authors on it. So, you know, the feedback I've heard from people who have gotten the textbook and read it is that, you know, well, my expertise may have been this, but I learned, you know, the other three quarters of the book because that wasn't my expertise. So, yeah, because it is so varying there as far as the subject matter, I think it's pretty beneficial to most people in the industry, at least focus on unconventionals. Okay. Well, like I said, we'll put the link in the show notes. You also have a video blog on completions, don't you? Yes, I do. So that's kind of, you know, going back to breaking things down simply, that's that's kind of where that came from is the way I teach. I'm not I'm not one of those instructors who puts a bunch of words on a text and, or a slide and reads them to you. So I like to animate things. I like to break it down simply. And, and so that's kind of what the video blog is about is that I take the, the complex completions and, and break down what is plug and perf, what are frac sleeves, what is different things regarding completions for multi-stage fracturing. Wow. Well, it really sounds like you like educating people on completions, which I think is outstanding. Is that on YouTube or where do you, where do people find that? Yeah. So, so YouTube, it's also on my website. It's, it's a little bit more organized on my website as far as ordering things like that, but definitely out there on my YouTube channel as well. Cool. Well, we'll link all that in the show notes. And again, that's uh, appreciate all the, all the, the teaching that you do for our industry. I, I love it. Before we keep going, I just want to talk briefly about our events coming up. We're launching Midland and Dallas-Fort Worth happy hours in April. The exact date and locations are to be determined, but we'll let everybody know. And we obviously have our super happy hour here in Houston. So anyone interested in one of the best oil field happy hours in Houston, come hang out with the OGGN crew every last Tuesday of the month held at the Cannon. The next one will be April 30th, I believe. 
Come out, enjoy cold beer from our sponsor Carbock, food from HEB, and the opportunity to network with other professionals in oil and gas. Visit OGGN.com for more details. We also have the Houston Professional Petroleum Data Expo. That's on April 9th and 10th here in Houston. And the OGGN crew, we are extremely pleased to be part of the SPE GCS upcoming golf tournament. That's Monday, April 8th at the Kingwood Country Club. And if you register through us, you get a chance to win either podcast host for a day or you get an expert interview. So if you're involved in business in any way and would love the chance to tell people about what you do, then this one's for you. You can choose the podcast you'd like to be on and we'll do the rest to get you an interview set up. And uh, with the other one, with the podcast host for a day, you basically get to hang out, sit alongside one of us and while we record an episode and if you're, you know, if you're microphone shy and you don't want to get on, then that's fine. You can sit down and watch from the sidelines, but it's a cool experience. So uh, if you click the link below in the show notes, you can certainly sign up. And one thing I want to give a shout out to the Oklahoma sort of the midcon division with regards to the F5, which is fin feathered fur. They're getting started with that. It's been, I think, a few years now, but uh, just trying to help build awareness. It's a great event. I know Denver does one. We do one here in Houston. But they're doing one this year, Friday, October 11th at Heritage Place. So if you're interested in that, hit up Courtney Strang with Inwell for more details or look up MidCon Chapter in the AEDE website. Also, anyone in Houston and actually play oil field hockey, you need to hit me up and because we've got the Hack and Whack. So come join the Hack and Whack crew for some gold timer hockey. We do it every three weeks at Memorial City Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. It's a blast. I actually played my first game of hockey, believe it or not, being from Canada a few weeks ago, and it was a blast. So we've got beginners, mediocre folks, to people who have played actually in the NHL. So if you're interested in that, you need to come, come out and, and join the fun. So... Aaron, uh, it took me a while to actually get through your LinkedIn. You have a novel of experience starting back in 2007 when you started out as a field engineer with Baker to now owning your own company. So tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so 2007, I started with Baker Hughes. It was kind of an interesting story because I actually started offshore completion. So I started at the Supercenter in Lafayette, and that was 2007. The Gulf of Mexico was doing well. But even in the good times of Gulf of Mexico, whenever December would roll around, Q4 budgets were spent for the year. So it was just slow, which is great because you get to enjoy Christmas and things like that. But, you know, being new in the industry, I was sweeping the shop floor five times a day, bored out of my mind. And I I called my boss and I was like, man, come on, somebody somewhere needs a set of hands. I'm not doing anything here. And he's like, you know what? Come to Houston. So I came to Houston, not really knowing what I was going to do, and started building these frack sleeves. So it turns out that it's the uh, the ball drop frack sleeves. Learn how to build them, and the next thing you know, I'm one of five or ten people in Baker that knew how to build them. So started going around teaching people how to build them. That's when these types of systems were really starting to kind of take place, the multi-stage ball drop frack sleeves. From there, I went up to Williston, North Dakota, learned how to run them in the field. And once I learned how to run them in the field, then I started teaching people how to run them in the field. So bounced all over the U.S. from the Panhandle of Texas to Marcellus to back and forth to North Dakota, uh, running sleeves. And then in 2008, at least to my knowledge, I ran the first type of multi-stage completions in, in these tight, low permeability reservoirs outside of the North America and China. Wow. So I ran two systems in the Sichuan province in late 2008. 
From there, once I kind of finished kind of bouncing around, there was a need for the Marcellus. I moved up to uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, supported the Marcellus as well as the uh, Eastern Kentucky, Southern West Virginia uh, assets, which uh, Lower Huron, Berea formations, installing systems there. From there, I went into product line. After that, then I went into the unconventional, well, we called ourselves the, the core team, Center of Reservoir Excellence, and we were focused on unconventional reservoirs. So, you know, so we kind of did business development through knowledge transfer. So we, we would teach internal baker people, we would teach our customers all over international, got a lot of international experience there. I think the last count I had is something like 24 countries and six or seven continents. So I got to get my feet wet with international travel and, and things like that, and and then my last role with Baker was product line manager for multi-stage completions. After that, Baker made my decision easy. So they laid me off in February of 2015. So as I'm kind of, you know, looking at what I want to do, you know, all of a sudden it was kind of a, a relief because, you know, I could literally could do whatever I wanted to do. So I got to, you know, updating the resume, what I want to do. I'd always talked about having my own business. I had uh, been teaching through Baker Hughes for many years, been teaching through SPE for many years. And I was like, you know what, there, there might be a business here. So decided to pursue it. And next thing you know, four years later, I'm, I'm still doing it. So No kidding. Well, before we touch on the instruction and kind of where you're at now, you said you, you traveled kind of all over the world. What was your favorite part about that? And I mean, where did you ever see yourself just all of a sudden sticking in one spot versus, you know, instead of coming back to the U.S.? You know, I, I could see that in, in certain aspects, you know, for the right opportunity, especially. But yeah, it was, it was really cool because, you know, I, I grew up in a small town, Mississippi. And, you know, going into Baker Hughes, I had traveled uh, internationally to Calgary and to Cancun, Mexico, which oh, is not nice. really international. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, I guess, you know, if you go back to teenage me, world traveling, I, I wouldn't have necessarily predicted this. So. No kidding. What Now, tell us about Cancun. Why would you go to Cancun? Oh, spring break, of course. You know, well, yeah. So, so, so we did a cruise, our spring break of our senior year in college. Oh, a couple nice. of friends and everything. We went down there and just did the cruise, stopped in Cancun for a day or two. And, okay. I so. thought you meant you, you did the, you went to Cancun for, with Baker. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so this was, I'm saying before I started Baker, yeah, that was yeah. my international travel. I, uh, oh, I see. I was like, yeah. man, I'm going to need to get a job with Baker if they're right. sending people to Cancun. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, I keep waiting for Cancun or uh, Florida or, or somebody to have some significant activity there somewhere on the beach. So, well, you, I mean, now that you teach, I mean, you could go down and you could teach anywhere. So you could hold a course down and that'd be actually pretty cool. You, you know, for X amount of dollars, you come down to Cancun, we party, and I teach you about completions. I think right. you'd get you'd have a huge following, man. Right. You do like a completions mastermind in Cancun. Yeah, there you go. There oh, you go. I can see it now. That's cool. So you, you mentioned a little bit about being an instructor with SPE. So do you is that something you do regularly, or or what do you do with them? Yeah. So uh, actually, I have five courses now with SPE between. I think it's three of them in the SPE International and uh, two of them uh, for the SPE Gulf Coast section here in the Southeast. So, yeah, I've been teaching that. Uh, the first two that I taught, I've been teaching them now for six, seven, maybe eight years. I just kind of sort of fell into them by dumb luck. One of the guys at Baker Hughes was, I guess, kind of done teaching them. And he was like, hey, he asked me and a colleague if we wanted to take it over. And we're both like, yeah, sure, why not? So, one thing led to another and then, you know, another class and another class. And so it just kind of depends on the year. But I'd venture to say I probably teach anywhere from five to 10 SPE courses a year. Okay, cool. 
touching a little bit more on on your experience with Baker, what would you say your biggest takeaway is from working with a major like that? And not a lot of people get the opportunity to work for someone with such a large footprint and sort of such, you know, advantages with regards to technology and just the training you get. You know, what what did you enjoy most about working there? You know, I think I would say it's uh, really my colleagues and mentors. You know, I was very fortunate with the uh, the people I worked with. I mean, that's, you know, every everything I learned now. So I, so I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree. When I started in the industry, I thought you poke a hole in the ground. I visualized something like spindle top and you just had to catch the oil, right? Yeah. It turns out it's a little bit more complicated than that. So not, I didn't have much experience in the industry at all. So I was very fortunate to work with some of the best best people in the industry through Baker Hughes. And they mentored me. They, they taught me everything I know now. So that, that's definitely one of it. Just the, the huge reach of and talent pool, I guess, with a, a large service company like that. Interesting. And now even bigger now that GE owns them, hey? Well, for now, anyway. Yeah. What do you think about that? Were you involved with the the integration with that or no? No, no, I wasn't. I don't guess I have any real thoughts on it. Sure. It's just, it's, I know that it's always interesting to, to see, you know, the, the different changes because it's, you know, how the whole thing will fall out as far as, you know, it appears that GE is selling them again. So Right. Yeah. I, I heard about that recently too. And yeah, you just never know out there. I mean, there was a huge Halliburton Baker thing and then right. GE came along and you just almost don't know from one uh, article to the next, kind of like oil prices where they're going, you know, it's like one right. day you, they're going up to a hundred and the next thing you know, geopolitics comes into play and everyone's scared for their lives again. So right. <laughs> you just, yep. we always got to be on our toes, don't we? Before we keep going, let's leave a review, everyone out there, please. If you want to support the show, I'd love it if you leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you have any feedback, hit me up on LinkedIn. Let me know what you think. If you have any questions or concerns, whatever the case may be, let me know. Speaking of reviews, I got one this week and I had to laugh the, from the guy's name or maybe even Lay is Fast Chub 69 So that's quite the, the unique name you got out there on iTunes. But said very short and to the sweet, best oil and gas podcast out there. So to Fast Chub 69 appreciate the love. So with regards to completions, what major advancements have you seen in your career with regards to, to completions or reservoir optimization? Yeah, so it's been a fun segment of the industry to be involved in. You know, I, I talked with my boss, one of my bosses at Baker Hughes years ago, and we were talking, we were releasing new products. And basically, you know, six months after we released it, it was it, it was useless. It, you know, it just evolved that quickly. And he was like, you know, when when I was coming up, and he had had about 30 years of experience at the time. He was like, you know, you develop the latest and greatest packer, the latest and greatest liner hanger. It's the latest and greatest for the next 30 years. With unconventionals, the evolution happens so quick. There might be a six-month window, and then it's done because <laughs> the next thing has evolved. So, you know, we, we've seen it go from plug-in perf to ball drop frac sleeves to cool tubing frac sleeves and then shift back. You know, I would venture to say that 95% of the U.S. market now is plug-in perf. So, you know, just, you know, 2008 through 10, it kind of seemed the opposite trend. Everybody was going away from plug-in perf. Okay. It was losing more and more market share, and so, then it shifted back So why to is perf. that? So why would one? Why would it shift like that? Well, there's a variety of different reasons. In my opinion, I, I think a lot of it has to do with downturn economics. You know, you, these, these numbers are very difficult to track, but I, I would really kind of estimate that in 2013 or so, before the downturn really kind of started taking effect, plug-in perf was probably 60% of the U.S. market. Now, you know, if you look at all the dynamics, if you take the Bakken specifically, it was very heavy on the ball drop frac sleeves. The downturn hit, and when the downturn hit, the state of North Dakota gave them, well, 
So before the downturn hit, they had one year to drill the well, fracture it, and put it on production. When the downturn hit, the state of North Dakota extended that to two years. Now, once they did that, there were several very prominent Bakken operators that publicly stated, we will not be fracturing wells and putting on production until we either get oil prices we like or we have to after that two-year period. So their strategy was to not fracture wells, not put them on production. So if you look at it from that standpoint, you know, the upfront cost is wellbore construction cost. So the equipment you're running in the well. Now, a cement job versus, you know, 50 frac sleeves and 50 packers, cement job is much cheaper. So if your strategy is to save money, why would you possibly do anything else besides run casing in and cement it into place? Right. Which everyone nowadays, it's all about cost savings, right? Uh, right. right. <laughs> it always is. Yeah. And especially, you know, if you, you go back to 2015, you know, 2016, it was really critical. I Absolutely. mean, and, and when you're talking about, you know, a cement job versus a significant number of frac sleeves and packers, you can easily save a couple million dollars, you know, in 10 wells and things like that. So, so I think a lot of the dynamics play into that. The other thing that I think was I think was kind of accidental there is, you know, if you ran a 50-stage ball drop frac sleeve in the well, that would be 50 sleeves, 50 packers, and you go back to fracture it two years later, and now your completion program is 70 to 80 stages or completely different, whichever, well, you don't have a lot of options. You have to just fracture it the way it was. When it's a cemented liner, you still have all the flexibility you want to. You can mimic your modern completion strategy in that well, even two, three, four years later, just because you have so much flexibility because it is just a cemented liner. Interesting. Okay. So where would you say the, the biggest leap we've made that you've seen in, in completion technology? Has anything sort of like revolutionized it since you've, you know, that you've seen? Well, it kind of depends on your definition of revolutionary, right? <laughs> well, what would be uh, yours? Yeah. You know, it, it's funny to look at all the, the service companies' brochures because everything's revolutionary, right, that they release. But, <laughs> yeah, um, marketing is king, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but no, I mean, we, we've had so many advancements. And, and to a certain extent, it's always difficult to see what advancements are helping and what are contributing to it. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that because it's like, are we talking about how much, you know, are, are we advancing in how much more oil we can produce or gas or are we advancing on how, how the efficiency of it? So I guess, yeah, that's a tough one to quantify, I guess. But I mean, in your opinion, if you had to touch on one point that you said, you know what, this has helped the industry tremendously, what would it be? I mean, would it be, you know, how much water we use or the types of fracks or I mean, what do you think? Yeah, it, it's uh, to a certain extent, it's kind of all of the above. I mean, the efficiencies have gone through the roof. I mean, you know, plug and perf, that, that's another big factor in the last five years with plug and perf. You know, the Achilles Hill for plug and perf used to be efficiency on surface because you have to run a plug, set it, perforate, pull out a hole with wireline, fracture, shut down your frac, run back in with wireline, plug, perforate, and so, for, so on and so forth. So you might have taken two or three hours or even more if you had an inex inexperienced frac crew between stages and that's just non-productive time now we have pad drilling the well heads are close enough together that you can execute simultaneous fracturing so while one well is running wireline the other well is getting fractured and then they switch over the services so they start significantly reducing the downtime and in some cases eliminating it so so that's also helped plug and perf as far as efficiency at surface you know, especially in the downturn, we've seen a lot of different changes in the frac design itself, a lot more sand, a lot more water. We've gone almost exclusively right now in the U.S. to for sands instead of any kind of ceramics, almost exclusively to slick water instead of any kind of cross links. 
And then, you know, there's still a lot of experimentation going on. You know, there's different frac fluids being released right now, high viscous friction reducers, just different things. So so there's there's always just a constant advancement in the completion tools and the, the fracturing fluids, the everything, you know, as far as, you know, propping. You, you would think that you can't necessarily change a lot, especially once you go to natural sands, but you look at the last three years and, you know, a ton of sand mines have opened up in the Permian, which plays a huge role in economics when you're not having to ship it from Wisconsin or wherever the sand is coming from. That that saves a lot of money for operators. It does. Actually, I interviewed a buddy of mine, Tom Heitzman from High Crush a few weeks back, and we had a really interesting episode talking about sand. And so if anyone out there is interested in the sand world, listen to that episode. Tom talks, you know, a lot about the sand and sort of the history and, and why we use it in the different types. And so again, that was that was one that was really interesting. I want to ask you, I, I actually interviewed John Clark, who's also been in completions for the majority of his, uh, his career. And he was talking about, and again, I, the terminology and the way I articulate this might not be correct, but he was saying that they're looking at you know, different modeling saying that the, the frac propagation just by the, the basically making the frac is actually giving you a better quote unquote frac than even what the frac would be with the propant in it. So they're looking at, you know, like if you, you know, you have your void space when you frac and you shove sand in there to, to keep it open versus, you know, fracking it and it actually staying open, the ones without the propant, so to speak, actually provides better frac performance or something have you heard any of that or am i making any sense <laughs> uh, so so you're saying without propant it could be better conductivity yeah basically okay. yeah like it, some of the modeling showing that it, it may not be the propant itself that's actually giving you the the performance of the uh quality of the frack if you will right gotcha so that theory's been around for eight to ten years or really since the existence of fracturing do we need propant and things like that I'll venture to say that I, I don't quite buy that theory. And most of that comes from, you know, my trusted fracologist, if you will. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The problem with a lot of these, especially, you know, some of the clay prone ones, I mean, they're, they're ductile. They, and then once they break and once they will try to self heal. So sure. you can create the fracture, but if the, you know, fracture recloses, then you don't have conductivity. Now there, the, the merit behind that argument that you might not need propant is that, you know, you do kind of erode the formation. It doesn't. It it doesn't necessarily form a, you know, even crack that'll that'll completely heal. It'll kind of become jagged and I got you. Not reclose. Most of the people I've talked to on the fracturing end of it don't really buy that logic. That 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 it would work without propant. And if you kind of look at the industry trends, we're actually going completely away from that. We're using more and more propant, record amounts of propant in wells nowadays. Okay. So, well, John, if you're listening, I didn't mean to throw you out there like that. And and again, I may have not articulated exactly how you mentioned it to me but i just think it was an interesting topic so i don't know maybe you need to hit up aaron and you guys can cuss and discuss on on thoughts behind that but interesting topic nonetheless so aaron what do you think the future of completions and reservoir optimization looks like from this at this point you know that's that's tough to say there, there's so many new completion equipment from the equipment standpoint so many new technologies coming out I was teaching a class somewhat recently, and at the end of the class, one of the students asked me, so so we have this completion thing figured out, right? And I was like, absolutely not. And, and he just looked at me shocked. He was like, what, what do you mean? What makes you say that? And I was like, well, completions look so different today than they did five years ago, and I expect them to look completely different five years from now, just because they are still evolving so fast. You know, One of the best examples I can give is I was teaching an SPE class. And was presenting what one of the prominent permian operators 
had uh, discussed in their investor report, and that was placing perforations tighter and tighter together. So they were talking about 15 feet between clusters. So, so I kind of, I was, we were talking through it, and a student in the front row, he's like, "Man, you, you, you can't be presenting this stuff." And I was like, "What? What do you mean?" <laughs> and he's like, "You can't be presenting this stuff." Starting to speak a little bit louder, and I was like, "I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what can I not present?" You know. And he gets he gets upset, slams his hand on the table, and was like, "You can't be teaching this to students when this is you cannot do this. This is not practical. You're making up scenarios that aren't aren't even practical." And I was what? like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, this is right in the middle of your class." Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, buddy, I uh, wish you had that on video. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> great. I, I was like, "Well, first off, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't make this up. I'm not. This isn't a scenario. I'm just randomly throwing out there. This is a very prominent Permian operator that is." publicly stated this is in fact what they are doing wow. now the interesting part about that though is you would have gotten laughed out of the room five years ago if you had suggested cluster spacing that tight oh wow uh, maybe or, he just needs to get caught up to speed yeah and that, that's what it was it was just such a quick that was right when it had started happening right when operators were transitioning to that oh, direction okay. and and he just wasn't familiar with, with what they were doing you know there's and I'm just not the right guy to go into a lot of detail on it but sure. you know the, there's just a lot of things as far as stresses as far as stress shadowing and the theory was many years ago is that you, there's no way you're, you're ineffective if you do 10, 15, 20 feet apart with clusters. But all signs point to those theories being wrong, just like so many theories have been debunked in these, in this, these types of plays. No kidding. Well, with regards to completions and, and optimization, do you think AI has a place in this field? Absolutely. The only problem with AI, with all of the... Uh, all of that is, is the the classic garbage in, garbage out scenario. You know, the the software is out there to do high tech data analytics and AI right now. However, we're not really capturing that as an industry in a manner that it can do it with. Okay. So I did a project a couple of years ago, and the objective of the project was to look at the Bakken, determine the completion type. And then compare that with fluids, propens, and and to production to see if there was any meaningful production difference. So I ended up going through five thousand uh, or five thousand or so PDFs of well files to try to determine the completion type. God, and it wasn't simple, right? Because you know there's a form that theoretically the completion type should be on. However, a lot of times it said things like perforate, cement. Right. Like it doesn't tell you anything. That's yeah, pretty standard. The yeah. very basics coming from the field, you really right. never know what you're going to get. The quality of, of information is is a wide spectrum just at the very least. Right. So I, I would have to go through these documents. I would say they averaged 150 pages each. And I would have to look at, you know, sometimes it was in a different place. Sometimes it was in a random email that was sent to to the government body. Sometimes it was just a random wellbore schematic that was thrown in there. And, and then at the same time, you know, I, I, you have to consider that these were submitted before they actually drilled the well. So a lot of times they've probably changed their completion strategy. So, you know, when, when you look at things like that, uh, when it's in PDF form, you know, we just, we're not capturing it in a way that I, or at least on the completion segment, I should specify that, you know, drilling, production, things like that are a little bit different. But on the completion section, we do have to do a better job of documenting the data, I think, before we can really have a significant impact. Now, once we do that, I think especially by the time we've documented it correctly, I think AI and advanced data analytics will play a huge role going forward. Interesting. No, I think uh, anytime you can take 
a significant amount of data, which we have in the oil field and be able to make calculated decisions off that, or at least help people sitting behind a computer, you know, gather data and present it in a way that you can make better and more efficient decisions will only help advance the industry. One topic I wanted to touch on, and again, I don't think we do enough as an industry to, to highlight it, but what would you tell people who think fracking is, is just extremely bad for the environment and we're ruining the earth? What would be your comment to someone who thinks that? Yeah, so so just like any any other thing, the the way we get industry, there's always risk involved. I, I think the industry, what, what's not really captured in the media is that all of our safety precautions that we do take with fracturing, you know, it, it's one of those things too. If there is an incident, operators will pay for it. I mean, they they will be required to pay for it by law, right? So it, it's really in their best interest to prevent incidents, and, and there are a lot of safety precautions in place. As far as, you know, the benefits of hydraulic fracturing, you look at oil prices now. Uh, I was listening to, uh, I believe it's the latest episode of the Spears Brothers podcast, The Drill Down, and they were taught, they were predicting, you know, what oil prices would have looked like had hydraulic fracturing not come into play. And, and if I recall the numbers correctly, they were estimating, basically, there was an $80 difference. So, you know, oil price is roughly 60 bucks a barrel right now. But if shale, if hydraulic fracturing shale place had not come online, we would probably be at about $140 a barrel right now, just because it's a new supply, you know, and, and they referenced, it was actually a really great podcast. Uh, they referenced the Aztec Gold, Virginia Tobacco. Oh, I listened to that. Uh, yeah, 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 you heard yeah, that one? Yeah. yeah, it started clicking when you started talking about that. Okay. Yep, yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's all relative. Like we, we've all of a sudden flooded the market and, you know, before shale gas came into play and well, for the last century, there's been how many, four, five, six, we're going to run out of oil scares. Oh yeah. And we just kind of keep finding new resources and shale is one of them. And, and, and the great thing is it's not limited to North America, you know, us and Canada are really kind of known for the production, but there's a lot of international oil tight, low permeability reservoirs as well. So those will come into play in the future, and they are starting to in certain certain areas, China, Argentina, Saudi. But, you know, those will have a big impact, too. So Okay. So, and one thing, and you and I were talking about this before, with regards, because people think you just pump a bunch of, you know, horrible chemicals down to the earth, and the whole world is just, you know, going to cave in, and we're all going to be drinking chemical water. But I had to laugh. So, anyone with Liberty Oil Field Services, if you're out there... I applaud you guys. I was on LinkedIn the other day and I noticed, I think it was the CEO, Chris Wright, was sort of commentating and he had one of his his guys mixing up a, a frac fluid. I don't know if it was a slick water or what, but you know, they he, they mixed it up and then they brought some other folks into this into the video and they all took a shot of this frac fluid to say, hey, look, everything we're putting down whole is stuff that you can drink. Now, of course, if you were to slam a whole bottle of it, I'm sure you'd get sick, but a lot of this stuff was like, you know, bleach, you use that in your pool and, and, you know, some other, like some, maybe some xanthan gum or some other polymers and things that we use on a regular basis and things you actually have under your sink that just go down hole. And, you know, these materials don't actually leach into your water and you're not drinking them. And, and so it, it was interesting and, and I like what they're doing there and I'm sure they're going to get some flack from it, but anyone from Liberty out there, I, I, you know, I give you a round of applause. I think that was hilarious and it was cool because it was somewhat comical. You could tell the people drinking it were laughing and it, it's just, it's good. And I think we need more of that. So I, I had to touch on that. So Chris, before we sign out, do you have any daily routines or habits that contribute to your success? I mean, what do you eat in the morning? I mean, let, tell me when you get up from the time you get to work, what do you do? 
Well, I work from home, so that's okay. uh, that's the the benefit. So there, you get right? out of your so, bed in your underwear and you crank open the laptop and away you go. Well, no, I do take a, at least a good hour to just kind of wake up, get started for the day, just kind of get my thoughts together and on on what the day holds. And and typically, I try to do that the afternoon or the night before as well, just to kind of get my to do list updated. So that way, once I do get at it in the mornings, I can just start moving forward with it. So are you so, a big list? You you write down lists, and are you more task oriented? Like, okay, tomorrow here's my to do list. I'm going to knock this all out. Is that kind of your style or what? Sort of. It's, you know, that's the interesting thing about being on your own is, you know, that's why I do the list though, is to try not to lose track of some things. But all of a sudden, you know, you may get called and it's a consulting project and well, all of a sudden that kind of takes priority over the list you've just updated, you know, things like that. So, so it's, it's an ever evolving list for sure. So. Well, tell us, and you work from home and Tell us, you know, what company that is and, and how you guys add value to the market. And if, you know, anyone's looking to reach out for services, what you offer. Yeah. So it's uh, Unconventional Oil and Gas Training is uh, is my company. The best way really and truly is to go to the video blog if you're kind of interested in, in how I teach at least, because it is just the five minute segments of my training courses that's available for free on my website or my YouTube channel. Also, I do consulting work, just kind of anything and everything revolving around completion. So maybe a market study specifically, it might be, uh, you know, due diligence for, you know, kind of kind of helping the the private equity or venture capital markets evaluate completion companies or, or the market itself when they're looking at completion companies. And that's really kind of been the cool thing about consulting because it literally can be anything, you know, everything from. Someone, one of my former colleagues saw my videos and was like, Hey, do you do all those animations yourself? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I've got a presentation coming up. Can I pay you to, to create this? It was, uh, no some, way. uh, P and a stuff for, for offshore. And I was like, sure, that's simple enough. You know, I, I can do that. So, so that's, that's kind of the interesting thing about being consulting is there's endless opportunities and that's also the struggle too, right? Cause right. there's so many directions you can go and you have to pick one and run with it. So awesome. So Aaron Burton, Jack of all trades, regardless if you need presentations or you want to, you know, revolutionize some uh, basin with regards to completion advancements. So there you go. Well, uh, before we sign off, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work, man? Or are you just all work, no play? Definitely not all work, no play. I don't know. It's uh, it's tough to say cause I don't know. It's it's tough to say it favorite like, thing outside of work. Uh, it sounds like you're pretty involved with work. I don't know. The yeah. most people can be like, I like to go, you know, do this or do that or yeah. skiing or whatever. But I mean, hey, if it takes you that much time, you're obviously committed to what you do. And that's highly commendable. Yeah, well, I, I definitely like to hang out by the pool, make it to the beach as much as I can. And, Heck yeah. you know, I... It's funny because, you know, your habits change over the years. So, I, yep. you, you know, it used to be softball, golf, something like that. But I have I, I don't have much time for those anymore. So, hey, you know, <laughs> that's all right. So it's, it's a pipe dream until you retire. That's huh? right. That's right. So where are you from in Mississippi again? It's a small town around Meridian, Mississippi called Collinsville. Is And that's just so that's it's east of Jackson. But and then there's a isn't there a lake sort of east from you a little bit, a big lake around there? If not, then never mind. Because I was I was trying to think because I was looking on a map at Mississippi and I and I could have sworn by that city you mentioned there was a or a town there was a big lake and so I was going to ask you if you were into water sports but maybe I'm thinking that maybe it's a different town I don't know. Well, I mean there there are several lakes. There's Oak Tibby Lake is uh, around Collinsville, but okay. I don't know if that's it. But I guess uh, going back to hobbies, yeah, I, I fish whenever I can. So hey, there you go, freshwater and and getting into saltwater. So okay, well that, that's he's a fisherman. That's yep. good. I like that. Well, I finally got something out of it. Yeah, you. there you go. <laughs> well, look, it's now it's time for our podcast giveaway. So Tendeka is our sponsor, and they're known for their innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. 
and they're giving away a mini portable projector. It's a goodie mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video, or if you're looking at Aaron's vlog, perfect for that too. So for a chance to win, click the link in the show notes and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in. Thank you again for listening to Oil & Gas On Shore. If you're looking for more information, hit up oilandgasonshore.com. Aaron, thanks again for joining me today. What's the best way for people to reach out to you or get to know more about your company? Well, you can always, it's kind of a strange deal for me because I'm kind of a private person, but doing okay. what I do, I have to put my info out everywhere. So yeah, yeah. if you're looking for me, it's actually not hard to find. All of my contact information is on my LinkedIn page. I've got a website with all my contact info. So okay. email, phone number, all that good stuff is out there. So you're so. easy to find and that's, that's good. Right. Well, we'll link all that in the show notes. And yeah, so that's it for now. And that's a wrap. And always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Ooh-wee. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. Network.com.